0: Hi Edzard, Michael, how are you guys doing?
1: Very good. good.
0: Fantastic, good to fantastic.
2: See you, hear
0: you Well, it's 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 an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys. I mean, we we had a um we had a chat what was it? Uh, about a week or two ago, something like that, and yeah. I think I had like like 30 30 minutes um uh, put aside for that chat and it ended up being as long as an episode. <laughs> 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 Should have recorded that one. Exactly. It would it, it would have been really good to be fair. I mean, I I learned a lot about you guys and uh, I've been I I've, I've definitely been a fan. I've uh, you know, I, I, I love coming across companies and brands and individuals that are trying to do something the right way. Um, and I think that's really quite great. But I think before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty, um Edzar, do you might maybe want to want to start off and maybe give an introduction to yourself? um and who she pink are and then maybe michael you could follow
2: yeah no definitely definitely um so to give a bit of background on me even though i now i suppose run, run a fashion e-commerce business i started out in a very different industry i was working in the film industry quite a few years um working on a lot of kind of commercial projects brand big brand projects um and during my time in that industry started to also do some fashion basically some kind of fashion promotional videos and kind of promotional content working for brands like alexander mcqueen and gucci and i started to get really interested in fashion branding online um, and how you create basically a a kind of a meaningfully emotional relationship with people in the digital space so how do you kind of almost replicate the The kind of the aspiration and the emotion that fashion can drive in us Um, but how do you replicate that in a digital environment Um, because I felt that at the time a lot of brands were basically there were a lot of kind of D 2 C brands emerging but they weren't necessarily very good at the branding side of things they were very good at the rational proposition of why you should be buying products um, because they can offer it to you for basically for cheaper prices because there's um, kind of like the middlemen are cut out etc cetera. Um, but they weren't very good at the kind of again the emotional selling piece of the branding. Um, anyway, just kind of kind of long story short, taking that into account, I then set up a business called High Studios, which was um, actually a women's underwear brand. Um, and uh, the proposition there was very much coming in and creating, I suppose, a, a kind of a, um, a disruptive brand pr- proposition for the women's under for w- women's underwear space, um, as is kind of still quite problematic in that space is um, a lot of the kind of like the brand identities and the conversations very much around kind of women as, as objects and it's kind of full of you know everything is kind of made about sex and about boobs and like it becomes this very very kind of unfortunately this this slightly kind of backward looking part of the fashion industry when it comes to women's rights and women's identity and so we very much wanted to come in at the time and create something that actually quite simply turned the women into objects, uh, sorry, into subjects, no longer object, um, and really tried to create a kind of like a, a, an identity and a depth to the brand that could kind of also have conversations around body in a more meaningful way. Um, so I set that business up around 2015 and again, grew very quickly. Um, I suppose in many ways, a very traditional venture capital-backed business, um, you know, online only. We eventually had a little pop-up store, but um, very much focused online. Um, and the business grew grew rapidly. Um, however, as I was growing the business, I started to get more and more insights into fashion's impact on the environment. And what was kind of so surprising to me, it was like, it was a, kind of like a real eye opener as I was operating within the space that I had to kind of almost be in the industry to kind of understand how bad the impact of fashion really was. And I found it, You know, I used to kind of take conversations to the pub with me, you know, this is again around 2016, 2017, and start to talk about, listen guys, do you know, to friends going like, God, you know, the impact of fashion on the environment, it's one of the top five most polluting industries, Um, you know, and it was just what really amazed me was how little people knew about the impact of fashion and how kind of unaware they were of actually how problematic the industry as a whole was. And, you know, you used to get lots of responses going, really, fashion is the things you wear, really? It's that bad? Um, And you used to talk about the impact of, you know, from CO2 emissions down to kind of like pollution of waterways, you know, down to obviously labour issues. Um, And it just became increasingly obvious that the kind of like the knowledge of fashion and sustainability and, and the industry's impact wasn't really widespread yet. Again, a lot has changed in the last couple of years. Um, the kind of like the Greta Thunberg effect has obviously kind of kicked into full, into into high gear, and people now are now far more obviously talking about fashion's impacts on the environment. But again, this was kind of 2016, 2017, and, and people weren't necessarily really aware of it. So I decided at the time, um, further fueled by the birth of my um, of my first son, um, to leave my business and to really pursue like what you know how could you basically bring meaningful change into the f- fashion space and the idea was like basically creating a brand proposition that would both I suppose pave a new way forward like really show how you can run a business in a more sustainable and a more kind of in touch way Um, create great 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 products of course but also bring in i suppose an education piece to the customer and when i say education not in a kind of like wrap you on the knuckles type way but having a kind of entertaining educational piece around how to um to, to make people aware of the impact and also to make them aware of how they can make better decisions kind of going forward um so that eventually is kind of what became what became sheep inc um, michael and i um kind of Partnered up basically at that point, and we worked together with a think tank in Copenhagen called the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design um, to do a lot of market research to kind of like to really figure out basically how to how to tackle that particular problem. Um, but listen, before I, maybe before I go into the whole sheeping thing, it probably makes sense for Michael to kind of bring in his background, and then we can kind of all compile it together. And talk about <laughs> sheeping sheeping as a whole.
1: Look, very happy to. So my my background is very different from Ed's. Um, I come from the ugly finance world. So the first ten years in my career I was actually working for Morgan Stanley. I was looking for co- companies uh, that sat at the intersection of tech and media, and the Facebooks of the world, and the Twitter. It's incredibly bad, obviously nowadays. But then it was still disruptive and quite exciting. Um, looking at uh, Zalando e-commerce businesses, and I've done this for ten years, and uh, then realized not really my space. Um, I was always called. The person who actually shouldn't be in banking hopefully not skilled based but more because of the mindset was not really mine um so i wanted to switch into a startup and i joined a startup called argomi which was a fintech startup in uh in london and i was the chief commercial officer and have data and that was for me incredibly exciting getting much more operation involved understanding how a startup works um, what really, what you really have to have to do apart from only advising after 10 years being in a, in a bank, what you kind of used to, you go in and you go out and that's incredibly exciting because you see many things and you learn many, uh, many different aspects, but at the same time, uh, it never really makes you part of something. So those four years were really a great learning experience from that perspective. How do you build up a team? How do you operate between tech and, and management really efficiently? Um, but then after four years, I decided actually also still not my space because it was fintech. At that point, I had moved to Spain um, from London because I just wanted to be close to the sun, love nature, Austrian national. Um, so so I, I really need to be outside quite often and as often as I can. Um, and I wanted to ideally launch a an own startup in the B2B space, B2B tech. Very much related to a topic, which at that point became more and more important to me, which was sustainability. Um, and so I've worked on a few ideas. Um, and Edzard, who is a lifelong oh, London long friend, uh, he came along and obviously followed his his um, journey as well at Heist and what he has done there. And he said, hey, actually, if you if you want to do something in sustainability space, you know what's really a dirty industry, fashion, and it's incredibly transparent. Uh, nobody knows um, where things come from anymore, and it's obviously also responsible for 10% of CO2 emissions, and let's not talk about the water and chemical usage. So that was an incredibly exciting uh, offer to me, and I, I jumped on it, and we decided that we want to build the cleanest supply chain in fashion, and uh, that was the beginning of shipping.
0: Extraordinary, extraordinary. I, I wonder before we kind of start culminating the two stories together and reach this this pinnacle that is she Pink, um, I just have a couple of questions. Firstly, for for Edzard, uh, how what what was it with the lingerie? It would be a lingerie brand, wouldn't it? Um, yeah, it
2: actually, we slightly it was slightly strange for a guy to have set up. It was actually initially a tights brand, so we sold women's sure. tights, and then we slowly we slowly kind of expanded the product range. But yes, it's an underwear, underwear brand. I would specifically say I think sure. lingerie is kind of the, the more it's presentational the part. Yeah. Yeah. part of well, I mean, it, yeah. you know,
0: I I know you said <laughs> that it's a bit weird for a guy to have founded it, but then again, I think um, yeah, Victoria's Secret was founded by a guy, uh, so it's not uh, yeah. it's not that <laughs> and unusual. It's, and it's,
2: yeah, unfortunately, that that is the kind of the um, the exact example, pretty much why probably a guy shouldn't be in charge of kind of women's underwear branding is Victoria's Secret. But yes, also set up by a guy.
0: Yeah, uh, but I I wonder, you know, kind of with the usual the usual suspects with Victoria's Secret and Bow Avenue and all that other, uh, those mm-hmm. other kind of companies that uh, deal essentially in a currency of hypersexuality. um yeah. How were you guys uh, trying to transform that? It's a bit of a it sounds like just a a product that lends itself very naturally to being hypersexualized um so how did you yeah. t- kind of tackle that
2: well, I think the real problem in this space comes from basically the objectification like it's very much women are kind of almost that they're almost kind of decorational objects when it comes to um when it comes to women's underwear branding and I think what's really kind of crazy about that space is that we almost have a blind spot for it. I mean, you walk, you walk still into Marks and Spencers and you have kind of Rosie Huntington Whiteley draped over a sofa wearing sexy lingerie and it's near the homicile, you know? And it's like, it's kind of crazy that in a family store you actually have this, this image selling underwear, which is basically come and have sex with me. Right. And it, it, there's nothing, there's not, you know, that's not me reading into it. Like that is how it is presented. Right. And I think that that's what's kind of so strange about that space is that it's all we're almost blind to what's happening because what's happening is women are supposed to look at that they're supposed to imagine themselves in that role but they imagine they're supposed to imagine themselves in that image with a man looking at them traditionally right and you create this very very weird power dynamic when it comes to literally an item of clothing that should be very functional it should be comfortable and it should be, it should kind of work for you right and what we really did with you know but that that kind of fantasy only works as if that person almost doesn't have a personality like you know that, that it's, it's basically a body right and so we very much again wanted to turn that around and say okay how do you actually you know simply put again how do you turn it into the woman's body into a subject into a subject how do you make them real how do you make them a conversation point how do they become people you know wearing underwear rather than uh, kind of like again an object so that was very much the drive behind it was was kind of trying to trying to um change that relationship basically with the image and have conversations also very importantly have conversations about the women's body as well
0: no it's really interesting definitely not not an environment that i think as a as as a guy you kind of think about fairly regularly Uh, but i can definitely see you know just generally speaking the the, the fashion industry, and I, th- I think you're, you're totally right, the, the underwear, lingerie, whatever you want to call it, industry definitely is, is, I guess, a culmination or a concentration of these beliefs of making people feel that they have to be desirable things um, mm-hmm. and things that look pretty in a way that will attract other people. It's a very tribalistic thing, if you think about it. Um, yeah, you know, the same way that a peacock would put up their feathers, or uh, you know, a bird would be a, per- a certain color to attract a mate. It's uh, quite tribalistic in its uh, in in its in its in its definition.
2: Yeah, and I think, but I think fashion, in this, in the best sense, can turn that into something positive, which is you. It becomes um, the ability to express yourself, right? And I think that is where fashion can play an incredibly important part. It's not like come and fuck me, but it is like kind of like look at me I have I have a personality and I have a way mm. of creatively expressing myself and I do that through through clothing right and I think that is really that's that kind of important distinction to make whereas in clothing can form it's not so much peacocking but it is kind of an expression of self that can kind of come out through through fashion and I think that's where it can be very powerful um you know as 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 a creative medium
0: yeah I I I couldn't agree more uh you know it's it's I, th- I think people are now starting to realize that you know that it's 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 a real it's a real tough thing because it's so multifaceted you know are you trying to make a statement are you <coughs> you know saying something about your own uh personality are you saying something what other people want to think that you're saying about your personality there's there's so many different things but i think no, true, yeah. i think yeah but I, th- I think before we get in there i want to direct a question very quickly to michael um and it's quite fascinating because in in michael's case so uh, uh, Michael and I, we've got fairly similar backgrounds. My background is finance. I worked in hedge funding for 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 a few years, and um, I have quite a few friends that worked in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Um, so I I understand how now you know we have to kind of wash ourselves of these sins that we committed, uh, so, you know, like a spiritual washing almost. Um, kind of. Kind but of. Um, I, I wonder you. You you kind of mentioned Michael that um, you had this this really big kind of interest in sustainability and I that the world of finance and banking and, and commercial and uh, investment banking isn't exactly exactly a hotbed of uh, you know moral discussion and worrying about where the environment is going to go. So where did that interest kind of come from and how did it foster?
1: Look, no, it's a great question. And, uh, and it definitely, you're definitely right. Finance is ne- not necessarily the place we have those discussions. when I said I was always quite an untypical bank, what I meant with that, to some extent is that I never surrounded myself with my colleagues in a in free time. And that's not because they were not nice people, but it's just because we had different interests and different passions um and so when i was in banking i was in the east of london i had quite a creative um circle of friends and that was the place where obviously different topics came came to the agenda than only is the stock price of xyz going up or down um and the second part was uh, funny enough when so i was in banking first then i went to a startup and then i took a sabbatical and I was lucky enough with my wife to travel the world for uh, seven months. It was, um, and when we did that funny enough, it, it sounds, it sounds very, it sounds very stereotype to some extent, but we traveled to India and suddenly, in the first week, it was literally the hottest week ever on record and we couldn't breathe and I really felt horrible for, for, for the people living there. Um, and that was very much the media was, was kind of attributing this to climate change. Then we went to, um, to Australia and we went to Great Barrier Reef and that was the year where I think 40% of the Great Barrier Reef was just lost because of coral bleaching. So like, okay, that, that's a bit weird. And then oh we went God. to, and then we went to South Africa, uh, South America and, uh, to, to Argentina and watched the, the glacier Perito Moreno, which is actually the only glacier that still grows in the world. And you read then, start reading what's happening actually everywhere else in the world, to all the glaciers in the world, and you, you realize everything is just declining, declining, declining. And then uh, putting this all together, uh, we then moved to Spain and uh, we said, okay, look, nature is incredibly important to us. And when I say to us, to my wife and myself, and ideally let's look forward, what do we really want to leave behind? It's probably not a great career in banking necessarily, but it's actually something that I can be proud of. And that was really the mindset change that that happened on my side. So previously, it was being in banking, it was uh, more that it wasn't necessarily 100% aligned with my interests. Um, and it wasn't 100% aligned with how I saw myself. But then when I was at Argome and uh, worked four years there and started thinking what do we really want to achieve for the next 10, 20, 30 years um it was much more uh, what do you want to leave behind
3: mm.
0: yeah i think i think that's you know that's pretty much i think where a similar kind of way that i came uh, about it to be completely honest of very much kind of you know not being able to align myself with my colleagues and stuff like that right. um you know with uh, yes important discussions within that particular area but not i guess ones that lend itself to the longevity of humanity uh, let's kind of put it that way uh, you know if you're not c- conscientious and this is this is why and, and this is just a totally different discussion in itself but you know i really do believe that uh, the kind of money makers of the world the the movers and the shakers uh, the money men if you want to call them um they should be just they should be most concerned about the environment in my opinion and climate change because for them to be concerned about their stock prices and whether or not their quarterly returns are going to be up or down, we have to have a planet, and that's probably a good idea. You know, if this planet fails, uh, if the environment decides to turn on us and we have these ridiculous floods on every coastline around the world, um, you know, things are not going to work out very, very well for anybody. Um, so it's fascinating to see these big corporations now engaging in discussion, although. In my opinion, we're at a stage of greenwashing, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I do think that initiating some kind of global discussion um, is important. And it's really actually great that we're doing this episode during COP26 right now. Right. Um, I think I think that's, you know, absolutely fantastic. I-, I wonder, what's your guys' view on what's happening at COP26?
2: <laughs> unfortunately, I've lost a bit of hope. Um, <laughs> because it just seems to be it just seems to be that the, we just go through the same pattern right every, every single one of these and then every single the next one we go we <laughs> quite meet our targets but let's make it now let's make a pledge and I mean listen I think you know again Greta says it best right when you need to act like your house on fire this is on fire because it is I think that has to be the mentality but unfortunately I think people's houses literally have to be on fire for them to kind of realize the the, the kind of the emergency, right? Of it. And I think that's also where you talk about how the corporations, how the people kind of, how they continue to just move on without thinking about it is because I I think, they can, right? They can just compartmentalize it. It's not that they have flooding in their basement. It's not that their house is on fire. It's not that they, on the whole, in the West and the wealthier nations, it's not that they are devastated yet by real kind of like events that, that have a kind of like a life-changing impact. And unfortunately, I think that is the mindset for a lot of people. It almost needs to kind of slam them in the face, right, before they can, before they can really, really just decide that they're going to make a hard change of behavior.
1: Well, it's also, I think, from a, from a company perspective, uh, it was almost a starting point of shipping that we looked at the world and also the fashion industry, but you can probably include every other industry there. We said it is absolutely crazy that we are standing where we're standing after the Paris Agreement, and we we, we all know 1.5% is kind of the guiding light or the reference value. And we all also know it's completely impossible that we get there at this point of time, unfortunately, maybe 10 years ago. maybe One half, de- half degrees. One half degrees, sorry. Um, yep. But but we looked at in, uh, the industry, and we said, okay, people come out with uh, with bold claims about carbon neutrality and carbon reduction targets of minus 30%. Um, there was this fashion pact and said, okay, let's slash our emissions by minus 30% until 2030. Then some other people came out and said c- carbon neutrality by 2050. And you look at this and you take the data and you just realize it's just far too little too late. But right, you have to act quicker and you have to act to act much more drastically. And I, I'm afraid that, to to come back to what Ed said, COP 26 will be again um, a probably just a, a round of discussions and coming out with pledges that are only voluntary, and ultimately won't change won't change a lot.
2: Yeah, it's going for the yeah. best soundbite. It feels like at the moment, politicians are just kind of like, who can who can say the thing that. gonna sound best in the press you know and i mean and and to pick up michael's point it's like really again like the, the drive that we had internally was was to kind of to almost try and shortchange the conversation that there was for a brief period of time where where brands were kind of setting carbon neutral targets carbon neutrality net zero targets of 2030 2040 some of the bigger fashion houses and to almost just come in and go let's immediately let's immediately say that's not good enough right because and and what's kind of been been quite interesting and it's definitely not because of us but what has been quite interesting is how quickly that has actually happened like i think probably the bigger fashion has is as they were making these very big announcement going like you know we are going to cut emissions we're going to be net zero by 2035 2040 whatever the whatever the year was i think they were thinking that that would kind of like almost allow them to kind of like continue on business as usual whilst they're still trying to fix things, but they could almost ride on that for a little while and then they would be able to slowly kind of make the changes that they needed to kind of like to achieve the targets, because that's another big problem, right? So they were very unclear about how they actually were going to get to a net zero Mm -hmm. impact. But actually, I think what was quite interesting is it, it almost felt like maybe they had a couple of weeks or maybe a month of people going like, oh, that's quite good. But then immediately the conversation shifted to going like, actually, that's not good enough. And greenwashing and how are you guys going to do it? And like, come on, you know, you can push the you can push your kind of positive impact so much further. So th- that, again, is like does give me hope that it it doesn't seem people don't seem to be as bamboozled by these big claims and, you know, kind of look at a if you look at a caring group or whoever it is. That make these kind of claims of saying we're going to go net zero, that people don't immediately applaud them for it first of all, and then say, "Great, now we can all sit back and relax." It does quickly, very quickly, now come under under scrutiny and under attack.
0: Yeah, I, I, that was actually a point I was gonna I was gonna bring up myself. Is kind of you know we we are now entering this world where you know everyone has a voice, uh, you know, with the help of social media and stuff like that, and everyone can be their own commentator. Now that has its uh, you know, good things. I mean, I'm not a big proponent, if a proponent at all, of things like cancel culture and stuff like that. I think I think that's like you know, totally, totally, uh, totally fucked up. But I think what it has done is it's allowed people to just publicly scrutinise companies that need to have that scrutiny. You know, brands that maybe have historically banked uh, on the fact that they can't have public scrutiny, um, yeah. and the only people that are scrutinising <coughs> them are the newspapers that they pay for advertising. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's not a great system.
2: Yeah. And we, and we, we see about, you know, we come under attack the whole time, right? Um, the second you step, stick your head up and you say that you're sustainable, you immediately get people who come in and and Mm. who are incredibly skeptical about what you're doing. And, you know, listen, it's painful when you're on the receiving end of it, because you need to sit there and you need to make sure you can justify your claims and you make sure that you, you kind of like you have the data to back everything up that you say that you're doing, but. The painful bit is the answering, but actually the reality is it's pretty positive because right? well, yeah. well, yeah. it does mean that people are it's starting to more and more and look
1: at no.
2: companies that make these claims and start to um, yeah. basically call them out on things that are false, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I, I do see that as a very positive trend. Unfortunately, you do still get people who are very, that don't want to listen to any type of data, but I, I still think on the whole, it's a very, very positive trend that people are starting to interrogate things more.
1: I think I think it's it's also a trend that that definitely has to happen right? Because sustainability, the danger about even the word sustainability nowadays is that by brands, very often it is used as a marketing tool, you you sell polyester, acrylic cardigans with recycled recycled plastic buttons, and suddenly you're sustainable. So I think that that's something the scrutiny has to be there. Um, But unfortunately, it has to be there because we couldn't get it right the first place to actually um, trust brands, right, or having brands behave in a way that we can trust. And I think that's why, um, as I as said, there is a lot of scrutiny coming our direction, but that's probably a very good thing, um, because hopefully that same scrutiny goes into, into other directions as well. Um, and in the medium and long term, that will definitely then result into a very positive consumer shift.
0: Yeah, I think I think what we're kind of seeing, and like, yeah, I, I it's great that you mentioned this whole trust thing, right? And we're kind of in a really weird situation right now, where brands like Facebook, for example, you know, or or Meta, um, as they're as they're now known as, uh, wh- whatever that means, um, uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> it's uh I, I have views we'll talk about it afterwards but uh, <laughs> yeah. it was it was a um, weird pr
2: move that's all i can that's all i can kind of read uh, well it. i'll
0: um, tell you one thing guys it wasn't a pr move uh, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you afterwards i'll tell you afterwards but uh, <laughs> um uh you know that they they have you know it's essentially reached this this uh this pinnacle of of dis or mistrust uh, with the public yeah. Uh, but yet nobody is cancelling their accounts. Everyone is still using WhatsApp. Everyone is still using Instagram and still using Facebook and stuff like that. And, you know, I think what's now happening is you're having these companies that are just full of shit. You know, that they're, they're, they're totally, totally lying. They are misinforming the public. They're providing terrible, terrible information, uh, miseducation. Um. Uh, And misleading their consumers. Uh, But what's now happening is I believe I'm seeing this kind of trend of consumers that are holding those brands to account by not engaging with their products, Uh, but really and very, very uh, uh, passionately supporting brands that are proving themselves to doing things the right way. Uh, And I'm really, really seeing that because what what i'm seeing is the spectrum opening and i I'd, I'd love to kind of see if you guys are seeing this as well and what what i'm seeing is i'm seeing everything kind of increasing more so the amount of people that are climate change naysayers uh, i definitely see a lot of them believe it or not i don't <coughs> know if you guys i was literally with a friend the other day uh we got a coffee at a coffee shop and i happened to have a couple of cigars with me i hadn't seen this guy in a while we were we were having a nice time and This lady came over and was interested in the cigars. We had a chat and she was telling us that she didn't believe in climate change and how it wasn't a real thing. And within 10 minutes in central London, we had gone from, I think, 25 degrees Celsius to a monsoon. And I'm looking around, I'm saying the world heard you talk a load of shit, (laughs) madam, and uh, it's just proved you wrong. So I'm definitely seeing those types of people increase. But what I am seeing is the is the active, not Greta Thunbergs of the world, uh, but the kind of responsible consumers of the world are definitely increasing as well and becoming more passionate. But from my yeah, I point think... of view, yeah, sorry. No, no, please. No, no,
2: please. Yeah, and I think I think the, the kind of like the tragedy is, as Greta Thunberg herself keeps on saying, is like why the hell does it need to be the younger generation? It's the older mm-hmm. generation that fucked it up. Yeah, and I find this this, Baby, please. this kind of like almost this this shift in kind of responsibility going towards the younger generation. I find fucking appalling, mm. you know. And I, I find it, it it gets me so furious because I, I, ha- I was on a panel the other day with with ex-CEO of a very large company and he was talking about the fact that you know it's got so great the young generation and this kind of hope of that the next generation will, will kind of like come and they'll do everything better but I'm like it's just like we just don't have time for that you know it's like it can't be that we then go every like the next 20 years my son who's four at some point is going to have to kind of like be part of the be best next generation and it just, it, it's totally crazy that that is the, the the kind of the mentality of so many of the older generation who seem to kind of, I, I wouldn't say not really care, but they're kind of, you know, whatever, they're older and they're like, what am I going to do about it? And it's like, it just does need, we all need to be mobilizing to fix this problem, right? And to put this amount of pressure on the younger generation is, I mean, first of all, it's, it's simply unfair, that they're young. And um, But the mental anguish that is going into their like you know kind of like into their existence because they don't know what their future is going to like uh, going to be like is just so astronomical. And then to put the additional blame of like and by the way you guys are going to have to fix it, like is so crazy, right? And it 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 feels like that's kind of almost just become the kind of like the acceptable fact. It's like oh so great the young are going to come and going to fix it and it's just it, i find it you know just infuriating right the second the second something like that gets that's brought up it's like i do hope in the next generation it's like you no, know, the hope has to come from every single generation now. like everybody we need to be mobilizing. this is as it's also been used the comparison like wartime like efforts where everybody's oh, yeah. putting together to try and fix this you know um
1: well you don't even have to speak about the war times right you, you just have to look at the last two years and um, you can see that actually we as a society, we really can come together and fix a massive, massive issue. And also in on an altruistic basis, right, Uh, to, Mm -hmm. uh, to beat or try to beat a pandemic. And exactly that kind of mindset should have happened 10 years ago, or 20 years ago, from a client chance perspective. It's actually it's an irony nowadays for me that uh, that you look around everybody, is so focused and and, uh, and rightly so, obviously. But we we all want to beat this this pandemic. But everybody's so disciplined and so altruistic and so selfless as well, right? Staying at home for for months at a time, and and I think we it requires exactly the same effort and that even worse coordinated between multiple countries from a climate change perspective. And I think that's mm. um, that's on the one side it's an irony. On the other side, it's actually a hope at the same time, right? We have, Mm. we we can, we actually showing that we, as humanity, we can, we can move mountains if we need to. Uh, We just wake up that we really should start moving mountains and we should have started 20 years ago.
2: Yeah. And to to build on that and to build on that, I think it's Mm. legislation is, is the key piece in all of this, right? There's so much waffle happening in the, from so many politicians around like, you know, yes, we must do this. Yes, we must do this. But it's like, just create the legislation then. Just actually be just really blunt about it. It's like, no, you cannot just cut all the fossil fuel subsidies, which as we know is like, it's crazy that that's still happening. Mm -hmm. You know, and it is just like, create the legislation. There was a talk about legislation for greenwashing. If you make a claim as a company and you cannot back it up, fine them, like find them an extraordinary amount of money.
3: Absolutely. You start
2: to introduce these massive, massive, massive fines and it's just like stuff will have to change because brands are no longer going to be able to afford to basically talk bullshit. Right. And I think that is like, but it just does need that. It, it does need that legis- legislative kind of like impact. Right. It's like we need it to happen there. And I think that's the other big point of all of this is a lot of it is put into the power of, um, and again, funny enough, the the same argument I had with the guy who was talking about the next generation will solve it. He also said, it's not up to legislation. It's up to brands and companies to start waking up that they need to do, you know, that they need to make the effort into fixing, that that they have to play their part into fixing things. But I said, the companies will only do it if you create the legislation. They are, some of them are doing it and some of them are moving in the right direction, but it will sure as hell go a hell of a lot quicker. If you start to put in some very very heavy penalties um and and mm. some some proper red lines, you know, I think that's also always the problem is these these lines of what you can do is so kind of you know well
0: they're blurry if, they're if so they're blurry, blurry if not yeah. if not non existent in some cases right
2: yeah and I think you, you know, know think... It needs to happen this 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 year next year you know it, it, it is that speed right that stuff needs to start yes. happening and it's also I see. Boris Johnson making all these kind of like these now suddenly these big kind of climate, you know, kind of a climate, you know, kind of these wartime type speeches, which he's obviously like loves doing. And there's so little substance and there's so little action happening behind it. It's just, it again, it's just bullshit. And the only thing that needs to happen is like it has to be legislation and it has to be, of course, companies need to step up. but That is the big thing. It needs to come from the top down. so So you just can't do it anymore, you know?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's. I think I kind of fall like right in between what what Michael was just saying and and, and what you're saying as well, Edzard, because I think, you know, traditionally when we see uh, governments come in, create legislation, what companies do is instead of abiding by that legislation they then take money away from other departments and put it into their legal department to get really really big swinging dick lawyers into the in, into their department to try and find loopholes in that legislation you know to find out ways on how they can maybe rebrand or 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 reword and enter a new uh, marketing semantic or whatever it might mm-hmm. be right you know and i i was um Doing a bit of research into Daimler, the uh, the the company that owned Mercedes Benz, yeah, yeah, and I li- I like the fact that they are really adopting kind of alternative fuel technologies and stuff like that. But Hyundai and Kia, um, and Lexus have been doing this for about six or seven years, you know. And Tesla, I mean, the the the, the crazy bastard Elon Musk almost bankrupted himself just trying to do this thing, yeah. and now Daimler have just come out of nowhere tried to convince the public that they've always been interested in in alternative fuel technology uh they've committed to this kind of no combustion engine thing by 2030 i think is their is their is their thing but they're only doing it because it makes financial sense now because yeah. tesla went out there convinced the public uh, convinced the market that there is an appetite for high end beautiful electric vehicles showed them how to make them affordable and now that the big boys are starting to follow and make it and i Yes, yeah, but I think obviously. I think it came,
2: but it came. What was interesting about that journey is that is I totally agree. Like Tesla is obviously like hugely responsible for, for for moving the conversation on very very quickly. But it's kind of like, it is almost like a confluence of events, right? Because at this point, Denmark started to say no more combustion engines are allowed to be sold. So many European, Holland as well, like so many countries are now banning any new cars from having combustion engines that i think at that point they also understand that that's where the market is heading i, I think mm. it is they understand that there's a customer appetite point of view and then there's also going to be actually a structural problem of you're not gonna be able to flog your cars anymore at some point yeah so i, th- I do think and that comes again through you're right through the company side but it also comes through legislation right yes yeah, yeah, the yeah. legislation is preventing them at some point from selling the cars
0: yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to kind of uh, think that there is this altruistic effort, uh, the same way that we had the COVID nineteen global effort, and you know even that's arguable. I mean, did we really have a global effort? I mean, we're still in a freaking pandemic, you know, like uh, the cases are going back up. You know, is is there is there really a global effort? Um, you know, there was a global effort in making sure that the pharmaceuticals were able to to peg their uh, and and flog their their vaccines. There was a global effort in that. Uh, But I don't know if there is a continued global effort in in controlling this pandemic. But, you know, for for me, it's like the only way that these big boys out there are going to are going to really understand what they have to do is the automobile industry is the perfect example. Because using uh, you, you guys are aware of like planned obsolescence and stuff, right? Mm hmm. So, you know, Apple, obviously, one of the biggest offenders with this, where they intentionally make your device die before its death, before its expiry date. Right. Uh, like, yeah. I think the fine that they paid for that for, for doing that horrific thing was three hundred million dollars. Uh, and I think in that particular time frame, they had sold so many iPhones <laughs> that they had added, uh, I think, uh, like uh, like three hundred billion dollars onto the value of the company. Um you know, so they will find one of the biggest fines in history, but it was nothing compared to the amount that they had benefited. So I, I think that we just need a total, like, system reshape, uh, truly. But I, th-
2: but I think but I think the PR that comes with it becomes increasingly problematic for those companies mm. as well, because it starts to leave a sour taste in the mouth. You know, they, they kind of, again, there is that kind of knock-on effect. The younger generation become far more savvy on that. That's where the younger generation does come into play. They are the next kind of, like, group of consumers, and if they think that apple is a badly behaving company and they are a group that only buy sensibly then at some point that's going to become a problem for apple you know mm,
3: yeah so
0: yeah, I, think, I, I think it's not always
2: and, and, you know it, i think it's not always about the amount i think it is also about the perception that, that, can, that can happen at the same time of, of, of the company
0: yeah it's kind of like the long-term thing right like what what are they going to be yeah. saying about you in five or six years time or something like that and You know, but then kind of coming back to the fashion world, right? Like supply chain has been something that's very interesting to me because supply chain in fashion is pretty fucked up. Uh, It's quite (coughs) terrible, uh, particularly if you're dealing with China and India and Bangladesh and stuff like that. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, the Raza Plaza incident was very, very sad, received no news coverage. Um, But I think, what, uh, 1,300 people died in that incident or something? It was a factory that Boohoo and Zara and all the big boys were using. Um and 1,300 people died in that incident, and just no one really gives a shit. Um, well, I think the, the I good... Want...
2: I would say there's say, not that there's anything good about that event, but it, it, it did, again, it has turned the conversation about... And again, not that it's being fixed, but it is now far more conversation because of that event mm. around welfare in, in the supply chain. That's not to say that there's still huge systematic problems in, in all mm. these supply chains, but it did spark the conversation suddenly about okay, let's be aware of actually what is happening, you know, that there is basically slavery happening behind, you know, kind of behind so many of these fast fashion supply chains.
3: Mm. I think the crazy
2: thing about fashion, the crazy thing about fashion is that it, it comes from, and this is where we kind of turn the model on its head is like, there is so little visibility throughout the supply chain. People don't know like one step back from, if you manufacture in, you know, if you manufacture in wherever you manufacture, you normally don't see the steps that happen behind that. So you can go and visit the first factory, but you don't know, for instance, who's providing the raw material, who's processing the raw materials, who's like, what conditions are there on the farms where the raw materials are created if it's a natural material? You know, nobody looks further back. You basically, how it works is, you know, there's stats out there and I'm always uh, weary of, of kind of like naming stats because everybody will pull an alternative number from somewhere, but... Take the number with a kind of like with a, with a grain of salt, but it hovers something around seventy five percent of brands don't know where their raw materials come from, and you know which is totally crazy, right? So they don't actually see that far back into their supply chain. Therefore, they have total, I mean, their deniability of if anything bad happens, but they also haven't interrogated. They haven't shown an interest to know, okay, where does the wool come from? Where does the cotton, cotton come from? Like, what are the conditions like on farms? And that is because again fashion works very top down so you go to a factory and you say i want to wake i want to make a sweater in our case and they go great what kind of material do you want to use and they whip out a couple of sample books and you go like i want to use that material and then they go great we'll get it in and you pay that factory by the way for the yarn and then they create it for you you have no idea whether you, again you don't necessarily have an insight into who the yarn millers that maybe apart from a name, maybe, that sits on the sample book. Um, you don't know the conditions in that factory. Um, normally, in, especially in the wool, there's a process that happens before the spinning, which is scouring, which is cleaning. Nobody has any visibility on what what conditions are happening there from an environmental and from a um, from, from a kind of like from a, a sociological perspective. And then you go further back into, again, into the farms and there really nobody knows where the, where the wool comes from. Um, or where the natural materials come from and in the case of obviously we have a, um, a material taken from a- animals like nobody knows that the animals have been well treated uh, what are the conditions like when they're when they're sh- the, the the sheep are shorn like all those things just don't like they don't come into consideration it just literally starts at the beginning and it's just like i just want to create that sweater and then the rest all just happens you know and so that was very deliberate when we came into Sheep Inc. We said, first of all, we wanted to create fashion's first naturally carbon-negative supply chain. Um, and secondly, we wanted to have total visibility on every single step of manufacturing. And that meant starting at the bottom. So it really meant going like who the farmers. Which farms are we going to? What do they look like? How do they behave? How do they handle their sheep? How do they um, look after, um, the, you know, the people who work on the farm? Um, what are the conditions like, etc.? What are the environmental conditions like? How do they treat biodiversity on the sheep stations? And then we worked all the way up to basically to all the way to our logistics <laughs> to make sure that every single step was optimized for, um, again, for performance, so that we got the best quality out of it, but also equally important if not more important to make sure that there was this highly positive impact basically all the Mm. way through
0: yeah no it's i i wonder kind of when you guys were dissecting this entire you know essentially what's wrong with the industry where this traceability factor is fairly non-existent um you know and do, do you think that that's just a result of scale or maybe they just don't care so
2: it's, it's it's a couple of things. Scale, I think, complexity, supply chain complexity, but also because they haven't had to ever provide answers. Mm. You know, fashion has been an opaque industry for so long. It's not it's not the case that people actually walk into a shop and say, "This is really nice, but before I buy it, could you just please tell me something a bit about the impact of what it went through and what impacts it had on the environment and on the people who created it? We like we just don't interrogate that story. Was mm-hmm. it funny enough, like for instance, food, d- definitely not, not on the whole, but like that thinking has started to seep into kind of like our, our purchasing, right? It's like, we, we buy more organic, we start to want more information potentially about the farms who provide our vegetables. We, the, the eggs, we now make sure that it's happy eggs. If you're not a vegan, um, who are kind of like, who are laying, who are laying the eggs, like we do have a bit of a check and ba- checks and balance system happening in our head when we go and buy food and again, not. Not everywhere, but it's starting to kind of seep in, right? And that simply does not happen with fashion. It's like we just simply don't ask questions. And I think that, and this was very much when our, our initial research that we started to do come full circle back to when we were talking with the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design. We asked them the question, like we started the question, which was why do people not buy more sustainably? And the answer was that people don't know to ask, like they simply don't have the awareness. And you can look, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but it's like, the fashion industry is opaque, therefore people don't expect answers, therefore the fashion industry doesn't need to provide it. And again, people don't ask the question. So like what, necessarily where it started is is hard to kind of unpick, it's hard, hard to unpick. Um, but that is the problem, it's like, fashion hasn't had to provide it so there hasn't been a need for it and it's all been about mar- driving margins you know kind of so at that i think point-
1: i think that's exactly the point yeah I, I think from a commercial perspective that's how it started right because it was just too too easy and there was there was no no disadvantage almost if you look at it only um from a commercial perspective um if you move out of your production to to areas where it's cheaper to produce uh, there was no accountability and uh, unfortunately still is not enough accountability uh, about uh, around those those aspects so i think that that's also the that'd be the negative part of globalization right because people just realized actually why would i produce it in italy or in france or in spain or in portugal if i get it much cheaper far east and you know the great thing is far away from me i don't really have to check it people don't really ask um about how i'm treating uh, my supply chain in scope one, two and three, right? Um, and, and that's and it almost gave, gave them free rein. And I think now we're at the point where suddenly that tide begins to shift again. As, as I said, in, in food, it probably happened 10 years ago, right? You don't want to have battery hand chicken, you, you ideally want to have free range egg, you want to know where your meat comes from, if you eat meat, etc. Um, in fashion, it really hasn't happened yet. Um, but slowly, slowly people start to understand there is an impact, there's a story behind everything we were as well. And often the supply chains to your point, Omar, are significantly more complex and much more dirty than anybody would ever imagine or would have imagined. And I think that's also from a consumer perspective, why people were so shocked about the Rana plaza accident, for instance, they, they buy a, a shiny pair of name, your brand. And, and suddenly they realized that actually their favorite brand was involved in this. And I don't know who was more, more um, shocked or Surprised, uh, the brand or the consumer. (laughs) Probably some brands were equally surprised. (laughs) Sadly enough, right? But but I think that's exactly we are now at the point where exactly that tide has to shift, where the consumer has to also be to to the starting point of a a, a conversation has to be more has to scrutinize more brands and has to Mm -hmm. really demand more demand more information. And unfortunately, um, it also means. Doing a bit more research, right because it is very very tricky sometimes be between all the marketing lingers of the world you can, it's very difficult to distill which brand is really behaving well and which brand is just saying uh, it is or is just a bit more smart in using
0: marketing yeah. Yeah, no, I I I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So you kind of you kind of looked at the supply chain. You realized what was broken about it, what the issues were, things that you wanted to change. Uh, I I wonder kind of because your your entire range is obviously you know the namesake product is or fabric rather is wool, sheep's wool, mm-hmm. um or merino wool, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I wonder why why did you guys decide to kind of base it around that particular fabric because I don't actually have a lot of <coughs> experience with with wool. I've done a lot of research into cotton and <coughs> um, yeah. I've done, you know, stuff into tent cell as well, which is a fascinating uh, fabric, but mm-hmm. never really decided to delve into wool. So if you just tell me a little bit about that.
2: Well, so it, I suppose it really started with the product, <laughs> like what we wanted to make. We wanted to make knitwear. Um, that was the kind of like the category that we wanted to make products for. And And the reason for that was that, we felt that we could create sustainable designs within that category. And if you look at sustainability, if you look at it, even if you have an unsustainable supply chain, the most sustainable item of clothing you you have is the one you keep for a very, very long time. And ideally, you pass through generations, right? It's like, it just needs a lot of wear out of it. And so what we wanted to do is to sit in the category that that, that we were passionate about and i are passionate about kind of sweaters and knitwear and um, but we also wanted the the kind of like the product itself to have longevity no matter how we kind of like what we did with it we wanted it to be something that you could have for generations basically and I know this because I inherited cashmere sweaters off my dad, right, when he died. And it's like, I I still can wear them. Like, they're they're great. They're good quality. They really are. They can last for decades and decades. And so that was really where we started. We were like, okay, well, listen, we want to to make it where we need to make it something that has longevity, that is good quality, and that you really enjoy wearing. Because, again, we can talk about supply chain all we want, but if we don't nail that, then nobody's going to wear them, and then they're, they're basically, people will throw them away anyway, and they become another problem, right? And so another kind of like sustainability problem. So we really needed to figure that piece out. And when we dove down into the kind of the material side of things, we ended up basically, and we looked at everything, by the way, like pineapple, that kind of fabric, you know, like really all the new sustainable fabrics. And really when it came to quality of wear and for what we wanted, there were kind of only two that made sense from a quality point of view, and that was cashmere and then merino wool specifically. Mm. So fine merino wool, and cashmere we almost we looked at but we almost immediately dismissed because it's a massive environmental disaster. Cashmere, um, what's happening in Mongolia? Um, cheap cashmere is flooding the market with with kind of high street brands now offering cheap cashmere. There's there's cheap cashmere brands in in America, and cashmere is just fundamentally a really really big problem. Um, you also need quite a few goats to create even one cashmere sweater, right? So there's just a hell of a lot of impact happening there. Um, And then Merino wool kind of was the other fabric that we very quickly focused on. And we said, okay, listen, this is we know that we can get the quality out of it. Merino wool is an amazing fabric. Um,
0: What's the difference between wool and Merino wool?
2: So Merino wool is it's finer and also it's better at temperature regulating because it's, it's from a particular breed of sheep. And because we get ours out of New Zealand, um, basically New Zealand has quite an extreme winter and very hot summers. So the sheep, mm. the wool needs to be able to adapt to both temperatures. And that's basically how it's evolved over time is it's become um, it's become this kind of like this very fine fabric that again is very good at temperature regulating. It also doesn't retain any odour. Um, it's very good at kind of moisture wicking so you can't really sweat into it. Um, and I said, it's honestly like I really, I have, pretty much never washed any of my sweaters that I have that I've had now, of course, samples that go kind of three years back, and they've never needed to be washed. Um, So it really does, and and that, again, obviously, is great from a sustainability point of view, because every time you turn on your washing machine um, or you wash something, it obviously also, again, has a bit of an impact. Um, but that was very quickly where we ended up was kind of like, okay, Merino Wolf for us makes a lot of sense as a material, but can we justify it? And that was, again, really our starting point is like, can we justify using Merino wool from a sustainability point of view? And at that point, um, Michael and I did a crash course in regenerative farming and started to kind of really understand how you could basically how there are these farms that are very much at the kind of like the cutting edge of things that are really looking at ways of using their land and using the sheep in their land to turn their properties into um, a kind of like having a very heady biodiversity mix, but also making sure that they're optimized for carbon sequestration. And we specifically worked with a couple of farms in New Zealand, um, and that was a search. We worked with a group there called uh, in New Zealand called ZQ Merino, who also provide all the Merino wool for brands like Allbirds, which you've probably heard of. Um, and we worked with them. And, and the ZQ program in itself is already rigorously focused on the best animal welfare standards in the world and the best biodiversity standards. Um, and you have to basically only 1% of the wool market, only 1% of sheep stations in the wool market worldwide would qualify for the ZQ program. Um, but we actually went to them and we said, we want your 1% of your 1%, basically. So give us the farms that really are doing at, at, at kind of like at the top end of what, what, what you guys are seeing in the market. And we quickly identified these three farms called Lake Highway Station, Amarama Station, and Middlehurst Station. They have all three have amazing owners um who are incredibly concerned about the, the climate Um some of them are more modern farmers and they're just only uh, first generation farmers some of them go back generations but they all share one thing in common and it's that they are very very concerned about the climate crisis and want their kind of setup to do its thing to kind of to help basically and um, practically speaking they also know that otherwise it's going to at some point become a huge problem for for, for their business you know if, if um extreme weather patterns continue it's going to destroy their 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 business as well and and, you know kind of also cause havoc for their livestock so we worked together we worked together with them and we basically when we launched we had these kind of like these three hero stations and because we have them as our raw material suppliers we then had we worked with a in italy um, who basically that was where we cleaned the wool, um, and they're the first B Corp textile factory in um, in Europe. Um, we scoured it, scoured it with them, which was all done with renewable energy, and then we spun the yarn with a yarn mill called Südvolle, um a German yarn, yarn mill who, again, hugely focused on sustainability, and we use a treatment called Eternity X Care which is um, chlorine-free, which is, again, chlorine gets nearly always applied in, in, to, to wool treatments, which, again, has a hazardous impact. Um, so we, we developed this, this um, solution, basically, with them that was totally chlorine-free. Um, we, again, spin it using renewable energy, and then that gets uh, turns the wool into a yarn. And then the yarn goes to our manufacturer in Portugal, um, and the manufacturer in Portugal has these big kind of, basically these big machines called Shimiseki whole garment. Knitting machines and they're incredible. They're like, they look like giant Hewlett Packard printers, and they also all run on solar, solar power. And the yarn gets put into the machines, and then it basically prints out the it basically prints out the sweater almost. And because of that process, and because there's not cutting and sewing like there is in traditional kind of like fashion product creation, you also have almost no waste during the manufacturing process. Wow. And then what we do is we then take any kind of residue yarn that's left over, if there is any, and we then make these like little smit mark details on the back of the sweater, um, which is basically like a brand signifier. So we make sure that there's basically nothing kind of goes to waste. And then to to finally um, to to kind of like complete the the whole piece is we then have a logistics warehouse in the UK, which is uh, totally carbon neutral and has again solar panels on the roof, um, so it all. It's the first carbon neutral logistics facility in the UK. And to kind of to kind of come full circle back to this piece of like, how do we get consumers to care and how do we get them to kind of really understand the impact of the things that they that they buy? Um, what we did is we built a tech layer on top of our supply chain um, that all our kind of suppliers plug into. And every single um, event that happens during the manufacturing process is registered, basically, in, on this on this tech platform. And so we can trace the entire production of a single garment, like I'm wearing at the moment. We can see exactly when the wool was shorn, when the when it was the wool was cleaned, when it was dyed. Um, who um, basically was the person who operated the machine <laughs> that it was made with, and then the person who hand finished it. So we can kind of pull all that information. And then we add a little NFC chip to the hem of the garment and that when you scan it with your phone, you can then see the whole history. You can also see the full CO2 breakdown, because what we do is we also worked with a third party called um, Footprint Limited to do a full third party audit of our supply chain so that you can see. again. So it's not us making any claims, but it's a third party doing so. So you can see the full kind of CO2 impacts at every stage of manufacturing. And then the final piece that we did (laughs) to kind of finish the stories (laughs) and seeing as I'm not kind of like pitching the whole business, um, is we felt that transparency is not not necessarily the answer to making people care more about the provenance of the things that they buy. Like transparency is a nice to have bit, but that's not going to drive consumer change, right? If you look at the entire space some brand a lot of brands are now starting to do transparency unfortunately people don't really care enough like it's too kind of dry the information Mm. so what we said is like how do we get people to care like how do you start to create an emotional value to that story and so we said well why don't have them adopt a sheep on the same farm that their sweaters wool is from and so when you buy your sweater and you scan the tag that it sits on you not only see the whole kind of supply chain but we also connect you with a sheep on farm and it is a real sheep um we plug into the farm's database and we pull a sheep out for you and you get to name it and you get to see all its information you get to see where it is on farm and we send you updates on how it's doing (laughs) like you know the, the farm gives you updates and it's just a really fun way of getting people to kind of to think about where it started right because that's not something that's not a normal mental process that we go through we normally don't think where did this start like the fact that something a wool garment started with a sheep is not an automatic thing that you put into your head right um and so we wanted to kind of almost like we wanted to to spark that imagination into action um and that's how we do it by allowing you to adopt a sheep hence the name sheep included
0: holy shit uh that's uh, you know th- this is something that's fairly extraordinary so like you know you guys know i've i've done quite a few episodes around sustainable fashion and stuff like that and i've i've worked with some really great brands uh, in the past um you know i mentioned a few of them to you guys last time we spoke uh, i know that you guys um you know know of them and this is the first time where i have been blown away with with how kind of you know detail oriented you guys are and how how specific you are with just making sure that every single point of production to kind of even delivering the product and and almost even the 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 the, the user interaction the ui of the of the product as well is just geared towards educating and making sure that you are uh, as as impactful to the to the environment as you are as possible in a positive way so truly I just my goodness I I have to congratulate you guys because that is mind-blowing how that's even possible what you guys are doing I mean that's just unbelievable I cannot tell you how many brands and founders I talk to who tell me that doing something like what you're doing isn't possible right now well I think you're doing it
1: I think it's thank you first of all. It's very very kind. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I think that funny enough, that that was almost the premise that we gave to ourselves. And by the way, before I start um explaining in a bit more detail, I will say obviously this is a journey, right? We we are we we now currently have our setup where we continuously try to improve the areas that we still need to improve. Transport being a massive one, right? We are researching currently into different transport options, et cetera. But the, the key premise when we started FeeBank was really, let's let's forget- So, you, Michael, you, bro- you, you,
2: you, you broke up there for a single second, but just sorry. on transport, if you want to pick up from that.
1: Uh, sorry, I'm just saying, so transport is, for, for instance, an area where we currently are doing a lot of research. How can we use maybe sail ships, maybe solar powered ships, um, biofuel ships? But that's that's quite a difficult one to be honest. But I think uh, the key premise of starting shipping was to almost ignore any everything that was that 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 is there or that's the standard in an industry. Right? right? Let's let's start with a blank sheet of paper and let's first almost analyze and analyze the whole process from the beginning to the end. And every single aspect in the supply chain, let's make it a mini project, right? And understand what options do we have to deal with this. Um and then with these options um let's choose the one that we think is the smartest for the time being it will never be the smartest forever hopefully because we hopefully continuously improve and i think that was very much the mindset that we tried to apply throughout the supply chain and that's also what made it so fun building up this business right because we did not the top down approach and just went to a manufacturer and said just please create this beautiful piece of garment but we actually wanted to really understand what's what's under the hood and um how can we also improve um both from a sustainable perspective, but also from a quality perspective, also from a performance perspective and also most importantly also from a um from a just working environment perspective right we just wanted to know our suppliers directly because we wanted to know that they are pleasant working conditions and we wanted to understand that they are very much aligned with ourselves in terms of in terms of this drive and uh and that's why yeah, the, the result is the current form of Sheep Inc., which hopefully is continuously going to evolve. Um, but but it's what what makes it the most fun. And coming back to the point that we mentioned earlier, in terms of hope and optimism, I think that's also really the, the 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 hope that we almost want to give to other brands and businesses out there. That building something like this is much more fun than just walking the path that everybody walks and just look at um, how how we can make it maybe a little bit cheaper, maybe a little bit better but really try to almost re reinvent and, and challenge everything that that is there and rethink how things are being done
0: mm. yeah i, th- I, th- and, I think and, and to... Sorry, yeah. no no please
2: no i was just going to very quickly say that i think that's also the joy of, of having michael as my co-founder is that he didn't come from the fashion industry so the, the mindset there was very much like well why is it done like that and i think that challenge so i was completely was crucial,
1: ignorant basically coming into it that was my say. bliss
2: yeah <laughs> yeah but it but it is you do very quickly then get into that mentality of like well, why is it done like that and, and often even though I've, i'm not necessarily like a fashion you know my background is more tangentially fashion than really having lived and breathed it it's like that those questions are what made us kind of evolve and what made us push things. Were because it's like, well, if it's done, but surely we can do things differently. Surely we can do it this way and just look at it from a slightly different angle.
1: Mm-hmm. And and there are many and reasons. that data that
2: and that data driven and that data driven approach is, sorry, is, is really important, right? Is also it's actually just to look at and this is where we started. Is really to look at an impact of of the supply chain as a starting point, and this is anybody listening setting up a fashion brand I would say that's the most important bit no matter what you create we're not definitely not saying you have to make stuff out everything out of wool what we're saying is like it's exactly the right material for the thing that we're making and the the way of of kind of producing it manufacturing it is done in a way that the, the way we've done it can have a positive impact but if you're making something totally different the starting point should be, okay, what is the right material to make out and make it out mm-hmm. of? And then doing an analysis of your the potential supply chain and look at all the red flags that sit through it. So in our case, raw material or methane producing sheep is the biggest problem in the supply chain, right? So we needed to have something that sat around it that would mitigate that impact. And that comes through the sheep stations, the way that they manage biodiversity, the way the sheep functions within the, the landscape of the sheep stations. On top of that, we're also charting stuff like seaweed supplements that get given to the sheep which in our trials have cut their emissions by, by that 70 percent uh, which is kind of crazy um but you know that is that's kind of a that's the approach right is you really do look at it and you go like okay where do i need to focus all my efforts because we get a lot of questions from people going like oh yeah but come on guys you get wool from new zealand you then ship it to italy And then you take it to Portugal to get manufactured. Then you send it from a UK warehouse. How the hell can you guys have a positive environmental impact? And our answer is like, it just comes back to the data. Like if you actually look at our supply chain and you look at a traditional supply chain for a wool based product, transport if done by ship and by ocean is nowhere near the biggest part of the problem. The biggest part of the problem comes from the raw material side of things. Like it's 50 times higher than what the transport impact is. And so if you solve that raw material problem, then you can hugely mitigate any smaller impact that comes from transport.
1: And I, and I think the, the only additional point I would add to that is that in addition to thinking where things come from and what is the supply chain, what's the raw material, the, the other big uh, element that obviously very often gets too much ignored is where does it end up, right? So first of all, longevity to add point. How long can you use this? How versatile is it? How durable is it? But then also when, when you don't want to use it anymore in fashion or beyond what what happens afterwards with this, with this item. And I think that's the other massive, massive issue that we obviously have nowadays, microplastics, plastics, e- everywhere. And so we actually set up with, with the, with the philosophy in mind that we don't want to use any non biodegradable material. So everything that we produce is hundred percent biodegradable and, and should be gone in six months. Um, so, uh, that's, that's the other big element obviously that um that unfortunately now in fashion nowadays in fashion you have 65 percent of all garments are polyester or acryl and they will end up somewhere and yes recycling may be a solution but the problem is only one percent sorry to throw out some, <laughs> some random stuff but only one percent of um of all fibers are recycled into into fibers again because most of the fibers mm-hmm. nowadays are polyester acryl cotton blends or something fancy like that which sounds great, and maybe it's by the way even performance enhancing could be. I don't know, but the problem is that you will never be able to to recycle it again,
0: separate it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind. It kind of goes back to that original argument that um, was was kind of perpetuated around, uh, like like plastic straws or paper straws rather, uh, where you know people were very concerned they were being doted as recyclable when. Uh, they weren't recyclable because there were only two factories in the world that could separate the plastic layer and the inside of the straw from the actual paper. Mm. Um, And the majority of the waste wasn't going to those uh, factories because they were just too expensive. Um, So the majority of it was going to those bloody mountains in Turkey. Uh, So it's those those landfill mountains. Uh, So it's You know, it's 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 one of those things. But I I have to say, hearing the way that you guys have approached this in a very kind of systematic, logical, almost almost scientific manner where you've worked back from this solution oriented uh, practice where you're like, here's the problems. How do we fix that? And not taking it's not possible as a as an answer. You know, kind of working around it, even to an extent of which, understanding how to reduce methane production from sheep, like that's crazy to me. That's absolutely—I've never heard <laughs> that before from a fashion company. And to hear seventy percent—that's nuts. You know, my God, such yeah. a, such an such an such su- such an impact that could make. Uh, imagine if that was uh, if if that practice was then Im- uh, implemented in cattle. You know, that could really make a huge difference. Well, um, that you
2: realize what it, you realize what a kind of like also what a wormhole this stuff can be where you realize actually then you need to get the seaweed from the right place and there's a co2 impact of getting the seaweed to so many of these things i mean it it, it creates some additional problems but yeah it's it is amazing you know again i think the exciting thing of where we're at at the moment as a as a planet as much as it's terrifying is that a lot of innovation is happening and a lot of efforts are being put into figuring out solutions now again as has been said by so many people but i've also parrot is like we cannot rely on on technological solutions to fix the problems because then it's going to be too late but there are they are coming to help alleviate the issues that we're currently facing so i think that that is that is exciting that so much human innovation is now being pushed into that into the sustainability space
0: yeah yeah and i i also have to say you know like all of this Whoops! All this environmental sustainability stuff is is great, uh, but it unfortunately it's all for naught if the product that you guys are producing is, let's say, lackluster. Um, you know that would be a really big disappointment. Um, but I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because you guys are here, <laughs> uh, but truly, I mean, I'm wearing uh, your cardigan now. But you know, I have to say, it's one of the nicest knitwear I've ever I've ever had, and I'm including you know all of my terrible cashmere stuff as well that i have <laughs> um and uh, you know it's and it, and in fact when it comes to the actual kind of nap of the product i guess you could call it the uh, the, the the feel of the product i find it very very difficult uh to to discern mm-hmm. between this and my cashmere uh, stuff it's extraordinarily fine very very beautifully done uh, the pigment as well that you guys use is very interesting um extraordinarily vibrant very very even as well and i you know, from, from a fit, from a usage, uh, point of view and an aesthetical point of view. I mean, I am just totally, totally in love with what you guys are doing aside from all the added bonus by the fact that I've got a very, very lovely sheep called Pepe now. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's, uh, I was trying to get him up on the thing, but, um, uh, you know, I've, uh, I, 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 am very proud when I talk to people and I say, I have a, uh, Pepe is doing well. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna check in on him very soon. Uh, but it's it's weird because it it just makes it makes things so fun. It's so random, right? It's like a sheep yeah. with a car with a jumper. Like, what's going on? These guys are nuts. But it's actually really really cool, and it makes me feel just fantastic. It's like I adopted a sheep. I'm kind of you know doing something really interesting here.
2: Yeah, and I think I think the important thanks again. We will also pass on definitely. Product is Alex Lewis, who's, who runs all our. Um, products will pass on your your kind words but i think also this idea of stimulating a conversation through a fun entry point was definitely also our our objective right the whole thing where you start by saying it's you know check out my sheep and then that kickstarts the conversation to talk about fashion to talk about the impact to talk about what we're doing but it's not you don't want to be kind of almost d- delivering that sermon on fashion from too too heavy a place right so i think that was the Mm. other thing is like you have to bring some kind of levity into the conversation and pepe the sheep is kind of like the right mechanism for (laughs) right mechanism for that right
0: yeah i i I couldn't i couldn't agree more and it 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 adds this you're, you're totally right it's that levity it's this jovial nature right it's that point of interest that's just like oh okay i wasn't i wasn't expecting that and why are they doing that and then you go into the idea of you know why are you in New Zealand why are you using those particular sheets why are you using that farm how is it made and it leads on yeah. very very nicely so you know I, I have to say you know just from a product experience point of view truly truly beautiful stuff you guys are making you know stuff that rivals like I've got I've got stuff from brands like you know Laura Piana and, and, and Brunello Cuccinelli and all that sort of stuff and I'm that that will never see the, the the light of day again as far as i'm concerned it's, um, <laughs> well that's very high price know, it's, thank you <laughs> it, it but I think, truly but, but it, is you know it, it's it's uh my goodness i'm I'm truly surprised and i know people will look at your products and be like my god it's so expensive but it it hits so much higher than its price point
2: yeah. thank you i mean obviously we're no nowhere near the kind of brunello cuccinelli laura Piana prices um you know that, i think that that's another thing is sustainable fashion on the whole has obviously a reputation of being more expensive. Um, you know, our sweaters just so people know it's like 160 pounds for our crew neck and 140 pounds for our hoodie. And we, we kind of have products that sit roughly in, in those figures. Um, but I think that, you know, sorry, to start, first of all, about product quality is I think this whole business would only work if the product quality was of that high standard. We really had to make it the a, a best in class product. Um, we wanted to add all these additional pieces but again if we hadn't nailed the product then nobody would buy into it you know the people are not going to be spending money on something out of the goodness of their heart just out of the goodness of their heart they really want to have a good product that comes out of it so that was for us really important and then on price i think you know price has now become this weird thing in fashion you know it's like yes you can get the fast fashion piece but first of all just put the the numbers in perspective you know a fast fashion item of clothing is only worn three to five times um Mm. you know and if you look at it at a value per wear basis it's you know it's it starts to it starts to get high once you you only wear it three to five times whereas in obviously ours is a generational wear so you'll be wearing it a lot a lot more therefore the value per wear goes up um but also i think probably what's really important to flag about this kind of fast fashion and this idea of cost and 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 uh, the cost for the individual is that Should we continue on this path, should fast fashion as one of the industries that have a massive impact on the environment, should they continue to be able to do the things that they're doing, deliver cheap products? Yes. But the amount of money we're going to have to spend to fix the mess that is going to be left behind due to climate crisis, it's going to be so much higher than anything Mm. that you can imagine when it comes to like getting a cheaper hoodie. And, you know, and at the end of the day, where's that money going to come from? It's going to come from raised taxes, you know? So even that kind of cost benefits analysis has to be put into, into perspective, into long-term perspective.
1: Uh, yeah. I think, I think there's a fun, fun point about cost versus price versus value in fashion, right? Where people think about the cost that it should cost you to produce it. But to add point, obviously it's just called the hidden costs are, are just never shown, right? Environment, animal welfare, uh, socially hidden costs. And, uh, and the price itself, uh, I, people also expect to buy something and the value decreases over time. But we also don't think that's necessarily true, right? Ideally, you actually buy something and you have real joy with this garment and you build up stories yourself with the garment. And, and therefore, over time, it will actually become a precious item in your wardrobe. Um, but what I always like is this um, analogy to somebody told me this a while ago, but uh, think about the wardrobe like a gallery and every piece in the gallery is a piece of art, right? And if you don't want to have this piece anymore for whatever reason, because it maybe doesn't fit in your living room wall anymore, then exchange it. But if you exchange it, then make sure that you do the research and you find a piece that you really, really like for the next 10, 15 years to come, right, and then and then you, you can put the new Sorry, hope- painting on. Oh, am I gone?
3: You were back, gallery, Yeah, you were just as you were slamming your point <laughs> home. <laughs> like the home,
2: just the home run was coming in. The um, home
1: was coming in. Well, I, I, yeah. I guess I, I guess I made my point. The point <laughs> is, um, if if we also as consumer obviously shop very consciously, then then we do our part to also bring the costs for us down, right? And that may solve this uh, this general problem uh, from from multiple levels.
0: Uh, I I love that analogy, actually, with the with the art gallery. Um, You know, I think I think, you know, totally gender neutral. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, your your wardrobe should be a collection of things that represent you as an individual. Um, And I think this idea of uh, buying an outfit for the price of a lunch, I think is actually quite is a terribly, terribly destructive thing. Uh, It encourages overconsumption, encourages Um, You know, the throwaway culture, disposable culture encourages the worst kind of affectations of a a rapidly growing consumer, global consumerist um, uh, society. Um, You know, and I think I think a a, a, a consumer psychology shift is needed, you know, to uh, uh, almost dislocate the idea of being cheap and the idea of being affordable. I I think those are two, you know, very, very different things. Um, affordability according to me is a very uh, low cost per wear Um, you know an example that I always give is that a hundred pound jumper worn a hundred times is significantly cheaper than a 25 pound jumper worn twice Uh, you know it just it's very very basic basic mathematics and I think people need to start looking into things like that uh, rather than I need something to wear tomorrow I'm going to buy it and then I'll probably just throw it away or something like that. Right. It's just this throwaway culture. And I think it's a really terrible, terrible thing, but that kind of then segues over into my final question, I guess, which is what's the future for you guys? What's the future for sheep ink? Uh, what's in store?
2: I think Michael summed it up best. Right? It's a journey. It's never, it's, it's, sorry. It's, it's a journey, not a destination. Right. And I think we can always improve. Like everything that we do, we can always improve. Um, I think, you know, kind of more exciting products, obviously, like we improve treatments, we improve our sustainability credentials. But yeah, keep keep kind of like growing, growing the business and and, and trying to improve every part of it. Um, we're doing all kinds of exciting developments with new yarn types as well, um, kind of finding bio polymer based wools that are going to be, you know, kind of half made in a lab, half with sheep. So you can start to cut out more of the sheep impact and methane impact. So we're doing some really exciting stuff. Um, and but I think that it's, it's very much the mentality of the business is just like, we're nowhere near there yet. you know, um, we want to keep on we want to keep on improving.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I wonder, are you guys going to kind of be staying with the, with the walled stuff? Are you going to start venturing out of that? I know you're kind of looking at, um, uh, you know, I guess, wool alternatives, but are you going to be looking yeah. at other things or opening up the range a little bit, or is it really something that you're very passionate about? Well,
2: I think for the moment we've, we feel the Marina wall is best suited for what we're doing. And okay. that doesn't mean that it definitely doesn't mean that we're shutting the door. Um, I just think that we, to, to, pick up how how you were saying we approach things is totally right. It's like we approach it from a solution-based starting point, right? It's like, what is the problem and what's the the solution? And Marina wool at the moment is the solution for what we're doing. And that doesn't mean that we will use it forever, but Mm. at the moment it's the best thing that we can be, that we can be using for what we want to achieve. Um, And, but that doesn't mean that we don't continuously interrogate everything that we do to make sure that, also, listen to, to, to fundamentally. To also make sure that our business stays ahead of the curve, right? To make sure that we don't suddenly look like an antiquated model. Um, that that continuous drive to kind of like to find the next best thing sits inherently in our business.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, well. I I have to say, guys, truly, you know, it's it's really, really been an absolute pleasure to be able to have this discussion with you guys. You know, um, you know, just really hear from from the inside. Uh, you know, from two guys who. I mean, you know, it's I'm I'm just naturally an optimist, but you can't help particularly as the kind of I'm right on the cusp between Gen Z and millennial. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I definitely feel that kind of responsibility uh, where myself and my fiance are now having to have discussions on whether or not we want to have children because we're concerned about the type of world that we're going to bring them into. You know, do we even know that the world that businesses are going to act responsible, the big ones and make the changes needed so that we live past 2050? You know, is is that actually going to happen? And unfortunately, it's a bit of a morose, fucking depressing conversation to have. But to hear from guys like yourself, businesses that are. I mean, what kind of world are we living in now where two guys who form a company that are making a product responsibly that's very, very high quality is deemed an exceptional practice? That's pretty weird in my book. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that should just really be the gold standard. That should just be how things are done. Um, But I think kind of moving (laughs) on, yeah.
2: But I think think on a positive note, I think what we have seen is over the last years how quickly things are accelerating and we all know that things can't go quick enough so i'm not saying it's happening at the right pace yet but there are encouraging signs that it is starting to pick up people are starting to call out brands more and more like you know we are now part of a group of people doing some some cool stuff and in the space and it, yeah, again, there is a continuous, fo- there is far more of a focus on it. Even when you go now for investment, for instance, for the business like that, it's a key part of the investor remit. So many companies that we talk to, there has to be a sustainability, it has to be a planetary mm. positive element to whatever business they invest in. So it, it does seem to be moving in that direction. Let's just hope it happens quick enough.
1: And the, and the yeah, other aspect yeah, that's,
0: that's I the, have that, said it better. That,
1: that's really nice to see is also that it, it is obviously a collective problem. And it's also something that we are seeing we try to solve collectively so we we get quite a few inbounds um, from other brands we reach out to other brands in order to also knowledge share right and try to have more a collective solution-based approach across across brands across different companies and and that's that's quite humbling and really nice to see right because that again brings us back to this optimism and hope that you mentioned at the beginning um ultimately it is something that we have to have to solve together but i'm pretty sure over the last years we've seen people are also very keen um, and and very generous with their time in solving it
0: Mm. yeah Uh, well you know i i I have to say like you said there's this kind of collective responsibility that's going on and you know brands are now starting to recognize that as edzard said yeah I, i totally agree you know things are just not happening as fast as they should be let's let's hope that you know industry decides to shift up into fifth gear if there is a fifth gear i'm sure there is but um, you know let's hope that they kind of you know pull up their socks and and move faster but i think from a micro perspective i have to congratulate you guys for doing something that i you know many many uh, experts in the industry and professionals that i've spoken to founders and you know um you know just just guys within the industry would have deemed what you guys have done to be impossible so you know, as a consumer, I have to thank you uh, for doing things the right way, producing beautiful products and just being just being generally awesome and also giving me Pepe, so thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> you very welcome. I'll regret it The pleasure's been mine, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Absolutely. No, the pleasure's been mine, guys. Have a good one.
1: And you. Thanks. Great you so to much. talk to you.